0: welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from foster and motley in this podcast they share their mission to help individuals couples and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience join the seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions when you invest you make your decision based on the fundamentals of whatever it is you are investing in. Speculation, on the other hand, kind of throws fundamentals into the gutter. It focuses on the movement of the entity's price. Can you say GameStop? That was kind of a perfect example of price as the basis of decision-making. So how does the risk differ between the two, investing and speculation, and what should you be asking your financial advisor? I'm Patrice Sacora. and in this episode of Foster & Motley's podcast about wealth and life, investment manager Rachel Rasmussen and financial planner Joe Patterson are on deck to help us tackle the topic. Now, you two are veterans of this podcast, so we're not going to go into your backgrounds anymore. We're just going to dive in here. And Rachel, you wrote a great piece specifically on speculation versus investing uh, for Foster & Motley's website. There is a link in the show notes for this podcast, too. We'll get to that in a little bit, but Joe, let's start with you and the client. How do you determine what investment approach is best?
1: Thanks, Patrice. I think what you might be asking is what investment asset allocation works best for each client. And we start like we do with all of our clients when we invest, which is, hey, what are your goals? What's important to you? Why are you here? Uh, and how can we help you achieve those goals? That question can be answered through the financial planning discipline. It can be answered through the investment management discipline. And we look at each client's situation individually. We try to thoughtfully assess their comfort with taking risk or lack thereof. We look at their financial needs, we look at their needs from their investment portfolio, and we try and stitch all that together to come up with this asset allocation goal. And as a team, we agree upon that goal. That's really where Rachel and our investment team step in and apply the Foster and Motley investment approach, the style and the discipline really to that individual client situation.
2: As Joe's describing, it's really a team approach, but it all comes back to starting with the goals. What is it that we're trying to achieve? And what sort of distractions can occur along the way that, that get in the way of that? So when we think about creating an asset allocation, that's a fancy way of saying investment mix. How much are you gonna have in stocks versus bonds versus alternative assets or, or what have you? It's very client specific. You, you know that someone who's reaching retirement is likely gonna have a very different portfolio than someone who's young and still working and and saving towards that goal. We need to create a customized plan for for each client along the way.
0: How do you take on the question of risk and the level of risk that an individual can really tolerate?
2: Well, we start with a few different things. A risk tolerance questionnaire is a basic way to get the conversation started how much risk is one comfortable taking how much risk do you have to take because in order to reach certain goals you have to potentially take more risk than you're comfortable with how much risk can you afford to take all of those questions need to be answered as we as we come to what is the appropriate asset allocation for a particular client and it changes over time. You don't want to see a stagnant portfolio that you're not paying attention to. Over time, clients get older. Maybe their their goals change a little bit. Maybe mm-hmm. what they had planned doesn't come to fruition. They choose something completely different for themselves. The, the portfolio needs to reflect those changing circumstances.
0: And Joe, do you find that a client may have a different... Th- different thought of their risk level than they really do have?
1: Yeah, risk is is it's challenging because we ask clients to help us define the level of risk they're comfortable taking. So as a new investor or a new client, you may not know what that comfort level is. Sometimes risk comes from experience, right? I, I know what happened to our clients portfolios and my portfolios last march
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. in you know march 2009 march is a tough month huh it's march right now <laughs> knock on wood. and and it's the ides of march no less but stop but, it
0: stop it stop it stop it just no 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 no
1: but stop i digress march. we have to help our clients understand risk in objective terms because depending on when you even ask the question you might feel more or less inclined to take risk. You know, the last year off the bottom of the market, last February, it feels good to take risk, right? Because everything is going up and we like up. If you asked people about taking risk at the end of last March, 2020, it doesn't feel good to take risk. No,
0: it did not at then. No, not then.
2: Joe and I were taking a lot of mental notes during that time as we were having conversations with clients to say, hey, is their risk tolerance really what we think it is based on what they're telling us? And last year was a great year to assess how you feel about risk.
1: I think what it comes back to is this discipline that Rachel and our investment team have in place and how we manage portfolios, we shoulder some of the risk, or at least we provide a buffer between the markets and this volatility in our clients because, and studies support this, you know, a retail investor is not likely to go in in late March of 2020 and say, okay, the markets are down 30, 35, 40%. Now is a fantastic time to rebalance my portfolio. And in every case that meant buy stocks that have plummeted and sell bonds that are for the most part, holding at least investment grade bonds, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel like the right move to do. That's where the discipline comes in. So we help clients try and rationally and objectively define risk. We say, okay, this portfolio might go down 20% or 40% in a bad year. But even giving those numbers to the initial question, it doesn't really help. I think in some cases, unless you finally get to feel that risk event. And then we look back now, fortunately, a very short time later and say, okay, well, here's what happened, you know, visually, numerically to your portfolio. Here's why that was okay. Because Rachel was in selling stocks, creating tax losses, rebalancing. And by the way, you participated in the bounce back. And now we're ahead of the game because of that discipline.
2: Creating tax losses, Joe, that doesn't sound good. From a tax perspective, it actually is, is pretty beneficial.
1: We're probably jumping ahead here, but when stocks are down, which we know they can be at times, and they were last March, down historically quick. When you sell a stock in a non-retirement portfolio at a loss, meaning you sell it for less than you bought it for, you recognize what is called a capital loss. On paper, it doesn't feel good to take a loss, right? Because you sold something for less than you bought it for. That's not why we invest. We don't invest to sell assets for less than we purchased them for in most cases. But the benefit there is by effectively locking in that loss, and by the way, buying another stock or other security in its place, we're not leaving the market, we're not giving up and throwing up the white flag, we're rebalancing. And then in the future, when there are gains in the portfolio, which there have been and will be over time, that loss can dollar for dollar offset that gain. While it doesn't feel good to be selling securities at that level, what it does do is bank these losses, which, by the way, per individual can be carried forward indefinitely for your lifetime. That's a future asset that can be used to offset future gains. Good example uh, have a client who's selling a business interest this year and the large amount of long-term gains that are coming from the sale of this business, we're going to be able to offset some of those with capital losses that we took early in 2020 and carried forward into this tax year.
0: Nice. I mentioned GameStop earlier. This uh, just, perhaps we need to do a whole podcast on taxes and those folks who (laughs) were dabbling in GameStop because they're going to get some big surprises with wins and losses and uh, the IRS this year coming up. But uh, we'll do that in another podcast. (laughs) Back to speculation versus investing, those two words. What is the difference, number one? And Rachel, for you, are they mutually exclusive of each other? Patrice, that's a great question.
2: At Foster Motley, our goal is to make sound investment decisions for a client. It's not to take portfolio money and speculate. And what it comes down to really is the level of risk And when we make an investment decision, we want to know somewhat what the level of risk is for that particular investment and compare it to the expected return in a speculation type of decision, speculative investment decision, you really are taking outsized risk for the return, like going to Vegas and putting it on black, you know, you can <laughs> really make it big, you know, that's great, but the risk is pretty also quite large that you might not make anything. Some investments you can actually lose more than you're actually putting into the particular investment, you can lose more than that, it, it depends on the, the way in which you go about it. So when we're making an investment decision, it's not that this one is uh, investing and this is speculation and there's there's one or the other. You can take a sound investment decision based on fundamentals and make it speculative by the way in which you go about it. If you take 70 percent of a portfolio and you put it into one stock, well, even if you think a stock is overvalued or or undervalued, you can make it speculative by having so much of the portfolio that you're creating this outsized risk. So we've been talking about risk on this show already. That's, that's really the crux of it. Beyond that, it's the definition. It's the decision criteria. Are you making it based on the fact that you think the price is going to go up a lot and, and in short order, are you making it based on what you fundamentally believe based on analyzing the data
0: What is informing the decision? And Joe, talk to me about time horizon and how that would play in here.
1: We've talked about the GameStop example, and and regardless of the security or investment on which one might be speculating, typically the time horizon is is short. Uh, What is short, it's hard to say exactly, but the idea is I'm gonna turn around a profit quickly. So when we are investing, it's a different mindset. It's, hey, we like this company. We like these companies. We like these types of investments because of underlying fundamentals. And we know that the time horizon, a little bit uncertain. We're going to be talking generally in in a period of years, not months, days, hours. Mm -hmm. So this idea of discipline also comes with an acceptance that we're going to stay invested, and if an investment goes down in value, then we're going to look at it and say, "Well, is there a reason, or is this just a short-term opportunity to rebalance or round up our position?" Uh, sometimes investments pay off quicker than expected. That doesn't mean we were speculating. That just means the thesis was right and it worked out quicker than we expected. So, the time horizon is key to this, and and you know that that lines up well with how we do business because our clients almost exclusively are invested for a longer time horizon in many cases a multi-generational time horizon that's a great point to bring up because that speculative nature of investments again even as rachel said you can speculate in good high quality businesses that have a great underlying investment thesis by taking riskier approaches by shortening your time horizon by looking for that quick hit
0: so it sounds like information is really a, a very important fundamental here. If you don't have the information, you can't make a good decision. Right.
1: Yeah, I think I think that is key. Our, my colleague, Tom Guidi, on our last call, when we were talking about diversification, which is another risk discussion, we diversify to reduce risk. And I think, Patrice, you asked Tom, well, why would you not diversify? And I think Tom put it nicely, and he said... If you're not going to diversify, if you're gonna concentrate your bets, and we can apply this to speculating, if you're gonna speculate, you are operating under the presumption that you have access to information that others don't. And, and the way our markets work, that's probably a flawed assumption, regardless of what we're talking about, or you're trading with insider information and then we've got a whole different issue.
2: I find that well-timed. You know, there's, there's gonna be some inquiries into this GameStop. I mean, we've already seen it, but yeah, I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, maybe we should explain what happened with GameStop. We've been mentioning it, but maybe some listeners don't know what happened. Who wants to tackle that?
2: Well, I'll give that a go. So you have some hedge funds or some big players in the market, and they're looking at this particular investment, GameStop, others, and they are applying some logic, so some rational, fundamental investment logic that the stock is overvalued. So they go to short it. So that particular investment and, and a few others, they, they short short this stock, which is a fancy way of saying they they borrow shares, sell it on the open market, expect the price of these shares to go down they can buy it back and make money on the, the replacement shares. Yeah, the replacement shares the stock actually falling and that's that's one way to do it but when you increase the amount of leverage you apply how many shares are actually being borrowed it becomes more and more speculative and if the shares rise in price you can really lose an infinite amount of money. You have these these investors online, we all heard about these Reddit threads where they're saying, go, go and buy the stock, drive up the price based on what? Based on the fact that someone's going to come in behind you and pay you more, doesn't matter what it's worth. That's when it becomes speculative. It has nothing to do with what is GameStop or AMC or whatever you, whatever you will. It doesn't matter what it's worth. It matters. Well, who's going to pay you more for it? Right. We try to stay away from that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there were some people who didn't claim they made 800%. And there were some people who did not do quite so well. And they, uh, a lot of them were the hedge funds. They got caught. in the Yes, <laughs>
2: you yeah. can certainly get caught. The more you speculate, you're going to, you're going to remember a lot of those wins but you're certainly going to remember the losses <laughs> and people don't like to tell you about the losses. Uh, I'll share that. You know, your friends don't want to tell you how much they lost on in trading in, in, in March. That's enough on that subject probably.
0: <laughs> so talk to me about speculation and timing. When
2: you speculate, you are very concerned with when to get in and out. And Joe talked about this. We're trying to make long-term investing goals happen. That's what we're about. When you speculate, you think you know something more than everyone else does. When is the price the best? And when is it the worst? And and truthfully, over time, it has been shown that that is really hard to do, if not impossible, mm-hmm. which is why we apply this logic to the way in which we invest. You, you have an asset allocation, you follow that. I mean, if we look at, Last year, for example, when the market, by market, I'm saying stock market had fallen over 30%, we didn't know how quickly it was going to come back. We just knew that over time, it would. And so rather than trying to (laughs) think that we know something that everyone else doesn't, we follow the discipline plan, which is rebalance to your targets. Over time, this will work out. It it turns out that was the right thing to do in hindsight, but at, at the time, you really didn't know that. On the other hand, you have some speculators coming out and saying, great time to buy in March. I think that this is going to be short-lived. It'll be, everything will be back to normal in April. I don't think anyone really knew that at the time.
0: That's true. And Joe, so what do you tell your clients who want to make something that you think is a pretty speculative investment?
1: You know, when I, when I get that question and we get those questions, right? It's hard to avoid because this makes for good news as Rachel pointed out, you can make money speculating. Not everybody makes money, right? That's not how markets work. Some people do. Some people make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're more likely to hear, as we've discussed, about the people who make a lot of money than the people who lose a lot of money, who generate a lot of anxiety for themselves, even if they do make a little money. If you think about timing and, in- and investing versus speculating, then what I come back to when a client says, hey, I'm gonna go buy some GameStop or Bitcoin, but that's been a good story lately, right? $60,000 $60, a coin over the weekend, now we're at 56,000, it's digital gold, right? Hey, a lot of people have made a lot of money on Bitcoin. We talk about why, right? Well, I think it's gonna go up in value. Okay, that's that's a why. What kind of risk are you taking? Probably a lot. Can you afford to take that risk? And that depends on the client. Some clients we can say, okay, well, you know what? Let's set aside a little money, a small amount for that person, and say, Hey, this is this is money that that you've got to be okay parting with, right? Use your, and use it, your play money. This is your play money. Uh, that's that's an arrangement we have with some clients and and we come about that dollar amount thoughtfully and we look at their long-term picture and say, okay, if you didn't have this play money in place, would you be fine? The answer has to be yes. Mm-hmm. And if it is yes, then we say, okay, let's let's go and do your thing. We'll We'll talk about it or not. And you know that's fine. but I think setting some guardrails around, The process. I like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a process that again, to Rachel's point, you don't hear about the majority of the people that it doesn't work out for. You hear about the the big hitters and that creates this FOMO, right? To use a Mm -hmm. current term, this fear of missing out Uh, that begets the buying, buying begets buying. We're ignoring the fundamentals. If there are any along the way, if we set up a, a little more controlled approach to it and say hey let's let's speculate then if you come out ahead great if not that's fine because we're in a disciplined fashion managing the bulk of your wealth or it's in your business and you're managing your wealth and that's okay
0: well what's another option to increasing risk without speculation
2: I'll I'll take that one you know that's something that that Joe and I work on together the planners and the investment managers really answer that question by not do you buy investments that we don't know the risk of you know buy buy, buy a bunch of bitcoin use uh, stock options take margin out on account we don't think that's a very good way of adding return expectations so really you're 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 thinking about how can i juice my returns how can i i make more the way that we think is a very good way to do that is expanding the amount of assets you have in a particular type of category. So, so stocks, for example, they have more volatility, meaning they fluctuate a lot more in price, but higher reward compared to a bond, for example, which we, a a bad bond market looks very different than a, a bad stock market. So what we do is expand the amount of risky riskier assets we have in a portfolio, not change what we buy, but rather, how much do you have in risky assets overall? And and that's a really good way to dial in to the higher return for a given level of risk.
0: Is it sexy to the client, though? I mean, or would they say out there, well, I want want to do a GameStop thing,
2: (laughs) Unfortunately, it's, it's pretty boring, um, or at least we try to make it as boring as possible. Because <laughs> when you interject emotion into making an investment decision, you put yourself at, at peril for making some pretty poor decisions. You're making it based on a gut feeling rather than something that is analyzed, um, paying a reasonable price for a particular investment.
1: Yeah, it's, it's entirely unsexy to your an original question. It is, it is boring. I think I use the word boring in meetings with prospective clients, which maybe isn't the best approach. But what Rachel and I see is that clients who have been with us a long time when we're in meetings and Rachel's talking about the portfolio and what we're doing, our clients can often finish Rachel's sentences or other portfolio manager sentences. And that's because we are consistent and being consistent and disciplined over time, we know works. And at times it doesn't feel good because you have markets that don't always act in a way that makes sense. You have a year like last year where five stocks have become 26% of the market, and are driving all the return, unless you own all those stocks in the same percentages of the market, then you have stocks that aren't doing quite as well as the market. So that's frustrating. But it's also comes back to the discipline. The discipline is stick to our process, stick to valuing companies based on fundamentals, rebalancing, that's boring but the discipline is the key and the discipline over time is really what is helpful and and you know we were talking about speculating and you know speculating can be great it can but it can be a roller coaster ride mm-hmm. emotionally as well and these highs and lows are a lot and we're getting paid among other things to kind of be a buffer between what's going on in the market and our clients and We take out some of the big excitement. We take out some of the stress. Clients delegate anxiety to us, right? Let us worry about investing. Let us go in there when stocks are down significantly and rebalance because we know it's the right thing to do and it works over time, even when it doesn't feel good.
2: Joe makes a great point. I mean, boring doesn't mean bad poor returns. It it, it doesn't mean that It, it means that we're taking the noise, the guessing the stress out of the process by saying mathematically over time, this is what works. And we follow that process, whether it feels good or not. And generally that adds value over time. We know that rebalancing adds value over time. We know that not timing the market is helpful Time in the market is better than timing the market every time, most (laughs) of the time.
0: (laughs) Is speculation more vulnerable to taxes?
1: Yeah, we touched a little bit on this before the tax topic, but specifically, if you are trading in a taxable account, meaning a non-retirement account, not your 401k, not not your IRA or Roth IRAs, then the activity in your account for better or worse, generates tax consequences. And if you buy a stock in, in a taxable investment portfolio and sell it quickly, meaning in this case, less than a year from the time you bought it, which lines up with how speculators trade, then you generate, to the extent you have a gain, a short-term capital gain. Those gains are treated as ordinary income as though you earn that income. So compared to a long-term capital gain, which is taxed at favorable rates, either zero, 15, or 20%, depending on your tax bracket, short-term capital gains are going to be taxed at your highest marginal rate. And so that you don't think about that when you get a win, right? But that eats into your your gain, depending on where you live to the tune of 40 to 50% of your total gain. Contrast that with how we manage portfolios. Mm -hmm. Rachel and I are very tax focused. We don't want to make big short-term capital gain consequences unless we have some losses we can use to offset those there is a a cost of investing as far as what's my after tax investment return and it is much lower if you're a speculator because you're willing to accept these high tax rates on gains you might have
0: for a while there it seemed we were seeing ipos all over the place every week every couple of days there were new ipos not lately are ipos speculation
2: more ipos can mean that the market is more speculative than it is on average so yeah there there has been a lot of ipos but there's also been this introduction of SPACs.
0: right right
2: that's a whole i mean that that could be three three podcasts for sure SPACs are very complicated. We won't get into the, the detail of it, but it's a special purpose acquisition company. And the number of SPACs that we've seen in the market and and their sole purpose is to bring companies public. That's that's generally what they're here to do. They're um, like a it, shell
0: company that then uh, buys something and takes it public.
2: Exactly. That's w- they, so they they kind of operate like an IPO. So we're seeing a ton of SPAC activity that makes us think, believe that the market is more speculative now than it has been over the past few years. That's certainly one of many indicators that we're seeing some froth going on. Joe talked about stock concentration within popular indexes like the S&P 500, a small number of names becoming a large percentage of that index, That is a, that indicates trend following that more and more investors are piling in, making some emotional bets, and it's getting further and further away of, than true valuation. Beyond that, you see vast number of single stock option purchases. That has exploded. Within the past year, could be because there were 10 million new brokerage accounts open last year. You have folks going to going home and saying, "Hey, I'm going to trade on my during the day. This is kind of fun." Right. right. So things like that.
0: It's kind of fun as long as things are going up.
2: You know, it worked out from (laughs) end of March (laughs) to now ish. I mean, you look at you look at the index. I think it's Goldman Sachs that has one out there that. That shows the non-profitable tech companies. So companies that make no earnings, nothing. They don't make hmm. anything, which, you know, maybe they will eventually, and some of them work out, but a vast majority, who knows, the the percentage increase from December to now is over 400%. The number of them? The, the, the percentage, the return is oh, 400% oh. in that index. It's wow. crazy. Those sort of things. We don't want to get caught up in that stuff. IPOs are inherently riskier. That doesn't mean that they don't work out. We know that being invested in a broad Mm -hmm. number of companies tends to do better. We don't really participate in those sort of things because of the risk-return relationship that we've gone over throughout this whole podcast.
0: All right. We've only scratched the surface on that, but our time is... Rapidly wrapping up, I didn't realize we had such a great conversation. Joe, Rachel, how can reach uh, can listeners reach you if they've got questions or comments?
1: Thanks, Patrice. Our listeners can find us on the web at www.fosterandmotley.com, fosterandmotley.com, or reach out to us toll free 1-800-532-2962.
0: Rachel Rasmussen and Joe Patterson for Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. And to know when new episodes are available just for you, subscribe to the podcast and, of course, share with your friends. They'll appreciate it. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information
2: discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that
1: provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.